Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. John McCaskill is a retired Navy SEAL commander, now bringing what he considers to be the life-changing and life-saving practices of meditation and mindfulness to the masses through his podcast, Men Talking Mindfulness, and his tremendous work with the previous guest and good friend of Octanon Verba and myself, Dr. Teresa Larson and Movement Rx. During his 24-year Navy career, John served in multiple highly dynamic leadership positions from the battlefield to the operations center to the boardroom. His style of teaching is unconventional, yet highly effective. He is passionate about helping others and organizations to become the best versions of themselves through mindfulness coaching, keynote speaking, grit and resilience training. But most importantly, John is a father and a husband. You can learn more about John and his consulting at johnmccaskill.com. John, thank you so much for being here today and for taking the time. It's an honor to speak with you. The honor is all mine, Marcus. Thank you for having me. I sincerely appreciate it. I appreciate it. you. And again, I probably should have hit record when we first started. There was some gold in there, but I'll see if I can touch back on it. I didn't even deploy, but in the military, there's a certain type of leadership that's out there and there's a certain stigma sort of attached to leadership or people that are veterans. And then they see people that are high levels, very high performers like yourself in the past and with the SEALs. And then they say, well, how is this person so enlightened? How does this person understand the importance of mindfulness? How does this person understand the importance of meditation? And what I say to them is, you may not understand what is necessary to understand the necessity of that sort of thing. And I think that having that kind of background makes you understand the importance of mindfulness and meditation. Can you expand on that a little bit for us? Yeah, no, absolutely. The importance for me, I didn't understand it. When somebody first introduced it to me, I had heard about meditation in the past. I'd even tried it. I'd gone on some retreats where someone, you know, had, hey, we've got a meditation over, happening over here. Hey, well, I'll go try that. And my mind was busy all the time. There's a lot of noise in my mind and in my life. And I sat down and couldn't meditate, quote unquote during these sessions and got frustrated and then just kind of let it be as something that other people do and I cannot do. And I didn't realize really why, what the benefits were. And then years later, after struggling with my own stress and anxiety, my own battles, I had a counselor recommend meditation to me again and mindfulness. So the meditation, I kind of pushed back against, hey, doc, you know, I've got some serious stuff going on. I've tried this meditation stuff before. It doesn't really work for me. And and by the way, I don't know what you mean by mindfulness. And he explained to me the performance enhancing aspects of it. And as a type A personality special operator, we're always looking for some type of performance edge over the enemy on the battlefield or over our buddy right next to us. And 
that was my language. So we speak my language. So I was like, okay, so this stuff can improve my performance. I'll try it. So I took it to heart. And the very next day I went and downloaded the latest meditation app that's out there and downloaded an hour long meditation and jump right in. And wow. about 17 seconds later, Oh no, don't, don't give me any credit just yet. Because <laughs> about 17 seconds later, my mind was everywhere, but on that meditation. And that frustrated me. I got out of that meditation very angry and I was like, okay, yeah, I, I proved to myself that I could not meditate. So I went back to that doc, you know, a week later and I was like, Hey, yeah, that meditation stuff that you told me about, it doesn't work. And he asked, okay, so what did you do? And I told him what I just told you. And he said, well, that's like, you know, lining up at the starting line of a marathon without ever having run a single mile before or going into the weight room and getting under 350 pounds on bench press without ever having lifted weights before. Not that I've ever been able to bench press 350 pounds, but the bottom line is he was, again, speaking my language. So I was like, okay, so how do I get started, doc? And he ran me through a simple breathing exercise that lasted probably no more than four minutes. And it was box breathing. And we had done that before on the shooting range to calm our breath, calm our heart rate so that we could shoot better. But nobody called it meditation. They're like, hey, we're just going to do a quick breathing exercise, get our sights focused, get our, our hearts focused, our breathing focused. And I didn't think anything of it. But here again, the doc years later is teaching it to me to control my body for other reason, control my mind for another reason. So I was like, okay, I can start with that. So I started doing box breathing and other breathing exercises fairly regularly. And I started to see how it did, in fact, calm me down in the here and now. And that started to last more and more as I started to do it more frequently and more often and for longer through the days, the, the effects lasted longer and longer until they started overlapping. And I was able to do, you know, 15 minutes or 30 minutes at a time, two and a half, three months later, I started to see those performance enhancing aspects that he had promised me. But I also on the side, I was like, oh, you know, some of the stress that I'd been having before I I realized it's not that important. Kind of some of the noise of my life quietened down and the anxiety that I had about the future. I was like, you know what? The here and now is great. So I can cherish the here and now. And that is what the mindfulness is all about, is being in the present moment and appreciating the present moment for what it is, whatever it may be. It may be happy. It may be glad. It may be sad, it may be frustrating, it may be scary. And it's just being okay with that. It's kind of tied to stoicism. And I've heard a lot of people tie them together before. I will say that stoicism seems almost as though, hey, you are not reacting to anything. You're okay with whatever it may be. And that's also similar to the mindfulness piece. But the mindfulness piece is, hey, you know what, I can be happy, I can react and be okay with that, be okay with that emotion, be okay with the fear, be okay with the anger, be okay with whatever it may be, and experience it and go through it, sit with it. And that I think is the subtle difference between mindfulness and stoicism is that you're not pushing back against anything. You're not pushing back against an emotion or a feeling, physical or emotional. You are experiencing it and being okay with it and then moving on. And that's what I think is the beauty about mindfulness is that it allows you to get out of whatever it is you're experiencing by going through it. 
again, whether that's happiness, sadness, fear, anger, whatever it may be. And that's so true. And again, in Stoicism, Zen, Taoism, even religions, they talk about this notion of just saying, I just have this radical acceptance. I have zero expectation. And when I remove the expectation, then the only thing that I have is the presence of whatever this moment may be. And even in the difficulty, like you say, there are going to be times when there's just difficulty in life. It doesn't mean we're trying to romanticize adversity, but we do have to be realistic and say, there are going to be times when it's difficult. And if I don't have this resilience, if I don't have this capacity to detach, to just sit with it and understand this is uncomfortable, but if we're really honest, it's like, where's the evidence that this is harming me other than it feels a little uncomfortable, or maybe I feel a little tightness in my chest. And when we can see that, like you said, now all these other things that we've built up in our mind to be huge, these things that are insurmountable or this relationship that I can't have a conversation about, now it's less daunting. Now we can look at it and just chip away at the stone and say, well, maybe even from a curiosity standpoint, what would that conversation sound like potentially? Not that we have to have it, but then what do we do? That creates that awareness around the possibility of it coming true. hundred percent. I love everything about that. It reminds me of the Brene Brown Netflix special. I don't know if you've had a chance to watch that. You know, she talks about vulnerability and fear and how a lot of those things are strengths, though in modern society, a lot of the time we, we view those as weaknesses. And she specifically brings up an example, and I've experienced this with children myself. I've got three young children, a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old. And there are times when I can be holding them and in my mind, I'm thinking, oh no, something terrible can happen to this beloved child of mine. And her example is she's watching her daughter walk out along the path to a car to go out on a date for prom. And in her mind is, oh no, something awful is going to happen. And that's the vulnerable side, but it also causes you anxiety. It's undue anxiety. You can't do anything about it, first of all, if anything awful were to happen. But most of the time, something awful is not going to happen, but we are perceiving that. And the way to counter that is through gratitude. And she expresses gratitude. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm glad my daughter has the ability to go on a date. I'm glad my daughter is happy going to prom. I'm glad that we live in a place where we are free to do that. And in doing that, it kind of changes the script and changes your mindset. And I think that's an important switch to flip for us regularly because all too often we can get caught in that negative bias, negativity bias, and think that the worst is going to happen. I mean, that's a natural wiring for us. It's built into us so that we kind of defend ourselves from threats. But in being wired that way, it can cause us that undue anxiety, stress, and even sadness at times. So sometimes if you just flip that script through adding some gratitude in, it can be incredibly helpful. And that's a powerful example. You talk about flipping the script or flipping that switch. We don't understand that if we're not the ones that are choosing to flip which switch that we flip, the external environment will do it for us. So it's up to us. Your life is either the decisions that you make or it becomes the result of someone else's. So we have choice. We have this opportunity. And much like that circuit you were talking about where that confirmation bias, that cognitive bias becomes just ever prevalent against everything that we see. So even when we're having a great day, we're looking for the negativity. I'm not saying to just walk out in the middle of traffic or get into a gunfight, but I am saying that you have to understand that most of the things that we are concerned about don't happen. As a matter of fact, 
there's a very high percentile of most of the things in our life that are going on that will not have a direct impact on us whatsoever. And if that is the case, then it's even more important for us to have this agency to be very intentional about what we want to do. And back to what you were saying also about the box breathing, which is so important. I think it's a great way as an example for people to get into meditation. As you were saying, that puts us into that parasympathetic, that puts us to that more relaxed state. And then that just translates into everything else more naturally. And again, back to when we're in this fearful state, when we have the sympathetic nervous system that's continually firing, where the amygdala just always mashing that button, that's unsustainable. Like all that adrenal fatigue, all that adrenaline in our body all the time, if that becomes our default setting, then when we don't have that, what happens? We start seeking out chaos. We start trying to simulate this. And then we try to create that response in other capacities, whether it be staying up watching Netflix all night, not getting enough sleep, having too much caffeine, sugar, junk, all this stuff. So I know that it may sound like these things are not connected, but if you listen to what John and I are saying, you'll see that they very much do overlap and they do very much dovetail in a way that these things will stack on one another and just something as simple as the box breathing or that presence of genuine gratitude, not the fake bullshit gratitude that people are doing. And I have a bone to pick with a lot of the gratitude stuff. Gratitude changed my life when I was paralyzed, like taking myself out of the equation and being grateful that I wasn't in Afghanistan when I was injured, grateful that my team wasn't hurt. And at that point, I was paralyzed from the neck down, still trying to figure out what do I do. But even that ability to be grateful for something that gave me no benefit other than I'm glad that nobody else is hurt. That was the real gratitude. That's where it was like, wow, that's powerful. And now you can truly build on that foundation. But if we have this fake gratitude where, you know, we're, we're grateful that, you know, whatever it is, these things, these creature commerce that we have, we can have gratitude for them, but they don't have the same sort of impact as they do to say, well, I'm just grateful to be a father. I'm grateful that I have the wife that I have. I'm grateful to be alive. Like those very fundamental things allow us to really build tremendous things upon them. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I want to come back also to the piece that you touched on, you know, in that we're kind of living in that sympathetic state all the time, basically the fight, fight or freeze state all the time. And that causes us to seek out adrenaline. But it also, the way I see it is we're like a car. And if we are constantly in that red, we're not going to be able to jump up to the red when we need to. So you're in a car, you're in the red, and now you've got something chasing you and you need to floor it and you need to actually have some type of jump in your performance. You're not going to have that. So if you're an operator of some sort, maybe a surgeon, although I guess a surgeon, you really don't want them to be in the red during surgery. <laughs> maybe, maybe you want them to calm down. That's uh, probably a terrible example, but an operator, you know, on the battlefield and you need your adrenal system to kick in, you need the, the amygdala to get you hyped up. You need that extra kick. You're not going to be able to get it. So if you're living in that red, you got to downregulate. You've got to calm down and get in that parasympathetic nervous system. That's where the mindfulness and the meditation come into play. And as you live in that state more regularly, when you do need to jump up for one reason or another, you're able to do it. And going back to the analogy of the car, you know, if you're driving at, you know, 55, 65, and some reason you suddenly need to get up to 105, now you can do it and you can do it fast. But if you're living in that, you're not going to be able to do it. I absolutely agree. And you've seen Bruce Lee. Have you seen him do his one inch punch? Oh, yeah. 
many times. Right. So what is he doing? There was something that he wrote about that. And he was just essentially saying almost Zen, Taoism, Stoicism, or this idea of saying, listen, I become completely relaxed. And now that allows me to completely explode, complete contraction. So if we can have this ability to step away, breathe, downregulate, even if it's five minutes, even if it's just box breathing in between Zoom calls, whatever it is, that gives us the ability. And what are we doing? We're resetting. We're resetting the intention of being present. We don't necessarily have to have an expectation. We're just like, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm allowing my body to do. And I've talked about box breathing before and other people have as well, but could you give our listeners sort of a very quick instruction on what box breathing is? Because I say it and I assume that people know it. And then there's so much beauty within it, just that simple technique. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's pretty straightforward, but yeah, definitely an explanation is required. So the reason it's called box breathing is there's four sides, just like a box. The first side is just your inhalation. Breathe in for four or five seconds, something like that. Whatever the count is, keep it the same on all four sides. So breathe in for four seconds or a count of four. Hold for a count of four, so that's the top of the box. Release for a count of four, that's the other side. And hold for a count of four, that's the bottom. And then you do that four or five times. And as you do that, you're tapping into that parasympathetic nervous system that we touched on. You're, you're activating that parasympathetic nervous system through the vagus nerve. And as you do that, your heart rate decreases, your blood pressure decreases, and your respiratory rate decreases. So you're actually calming your body, you're calming your mind, you're calming your nervous system, all in just a matter of seconds by taking those few breaths, holding them, and really focusing on that breath. That's the other part of it is, yes, there's the physical side, but in focusing on each aspect of that box, you're tuning out all the noise of the world, literal and figurative. And that also has a calming effect for your mind and your body and your nervous system. And I love that there's the visual component as well. Like, as you say, we're sitting down and we have monkey mind, everything's going everywhere. But if we have this idea of what a box looks like, or maybe you think of a color of a box, or maybe you think of a texture, a sensation, whatever it is now, this becomes much more robust. There's a lot more dimension to it. And even from that fundamental level, now we can go into parachute breathing. Now we can go into an extended exhalation to do different aspects, but it all begins with that foundational component of the breath. And then what does that do? We have to have mindfulness in order to do that correctly. Right. Exactly. Being focused. I did a quick mindfulness practice before you and I got on the call here this morning. I was driving in. I had, you know, talk radio on and they were discussing something that uh, I was starting to get focused on and, and I was starting to get kind of riled up about. And I, hey, let's turn this off. Let's turn this off. And just have complete silence in the car for the next half hour as I'm driving to work. And I just focused on that silence. And that was beautiful. Tuning out the noise on my radio allowed me to tune into myself, which allowed me to tune out the noise of the world. And I was able to come into work a lot more calm and level-headed and have this conversation with you in a completely different mind state. And if I continue to listen to this talk show that is intentionally feeding on our fear and that negativity bias that we touched on before and almost pitting us against one another as well as a society, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to turn this off. I don't need to listen to this. I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to make money off of my attention. We're living in the attention economy where our attention is being sold. We are the product. Our attention is the product. 
I was just like, you know what, I've, I've had enough of this. So let's tune it out. I feel that I'm in a much better mind state having this conversation with you now than I would have been. Yeah, I thank you for doing that. I absolutely agree. And again, if it bleeds, it leads. The, the more inflammatory or the more divisive it is, again, follow the money people, whether it be an advertisement or some sort of sponsorship. And if that's the case, then if they don't really care about you, then why are we even caring about that? Most most things are not worthy of our response, even less is worthy of our attention. And sometimes the best answer or the best action is just, as you did, non-action. I'm turning this off. I'm choosing to take control of this situation, not in a negative way or yelling up and down or punching the ceiling. And <laughs> it's like, what is that going to change really? Like we have to come back down to this place of being calm anyway. So why not just go the direct path and instead of trying to circumvent it with a bunch of subterfuge, as it were. Exactly. Exactly. And it feels so good to be able to do that mentally, physically, emotionally. Exactly. And especially in today's day and age, like you said, it seems like every device is either listening to you or trying to do a push notification in some capacity to get your attention. And again, even if they hide it under this veil of, oh, well, I'm trying to provide value or do this thing, it's like, "Uh, I don't know if you are. I think you're trying to get me to buy your product somehow. And that's the thing too. So we can be present to that and still make the decision to say, I'm choosing not to be involved in that and be focused in this moment, which again, especially as leaders, especially as providers, as men, dare I say, as husbands, as fathers, we claim that we're doing all this stuff for our family. We're working so hard. We survived the battlefield to come home. But yet as a warrior, if we don't have the ability to detach from that chaos, to not seek it out, to understand that there's a multifaceted component to every true warrior, understanding the ability to not treat your family the way that you would a team guy, to not yell at them. And we laugh, but we see a lot of veterans that don't have the ability to do that as well. Yeah, I've been there myself. And it's a brutal existence trying to get to that place where it's like, why is this not the same as it was before? And can you expand on that? Oh, yeah, man. No, this, this could be a long-winded <laughs> We're fine. response. But Pack a lunch, guys. Here we yeah, go. Yeah, so again, I'm a father, three young kids, a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old. And I know your audience listening who have young kids know where I'm at. And some of the audience who's listening who has older kids, they're like, oh, you just wait, John. I'm sure. I'm sure. But I get it. I get it. It's going to be tough in different ways. But you know, right now, the kids where they're at, they don't understand why I have them do a certain thing or why I ask them to do a certain X, Y, or Z. And the Commander McCaskill response is, because I said so, because I'm the boss, because I'm the commander. (laughs) (laughs) And that mentality does not translate to the family, uh, especially to young kids. Uh, It doesn't translate to my beautiful bride either, but... (laughs) That's a whole nother conversation. But I think being a father has taught me a level of mindfulness that I probably could not have had otherwise. Being a parent, maybe caring for something that relies on you 100% and doesn't always listen. I guess a pet could probably give you the kind of similar response, similar growth in mindfulness. But Taking the Commander McCaskill hat off and being dad or John for my beautiful bride is a different mindset. And taking that mindset, rather than bringing Commander McCaskill into the home, flipping that and bringing the John or the quote unquote dad mentality and open heart 
into the workplace is actually more powerful is what I found. That open heart, that compassion, that love in a way for your people and your leaders, those who are on the same level as you and those who are quote unquote working for you. Although as a leader, I've always felt that you're working for them. Having that mentality will make you as a leader and your people more effective. It's going to bond you all together in a different way. And that's where the mindfulness and leadership come together. I don't believe that you can be an effective leader without being mindful. And when I say that, I'm using the term mindful very carefully. I'm not meaning you have to go and meditate. Now, there is benefit to meditating, and that will improve your ability to be mindful. But in being mindful, what I'm talking about is being present in the here and now, listening to what is being said. And when I say listening to what is being said, I'm kind of doing air quotes for your listeners. That means more than just what is being said with words, what is being said with body language, what is being said with group actions, what is being said with habits by an individual, paying attention to that, paying attention to how what you say affects them. We had a discussion before you hit record about how a single leader said something and that changed the the kind of feeling in the room. And that can happen all too often. And if the leader is not paying attention, they'll miss that. And that's going to change the culture. It's going to change the morale for that organization. So the mindfulness piece, paying attention to everything in the here and now, being compassionate with your people, that is going to make you a better leader. It's going to make make your organization more effective, the culture better, and ultimately the why behind your organization is going to be better as well. So that's you know a long way of saying my kids have taught me to be a better leader. <laughs> yeah, and like you say, it's one thing to be a leader at work or an organization where we're in control. But in Zen, they have a comment. They say, they think when you're enlightened, go spend the holidays with your family. <laughs> right? And then it's like all these things come out. And again, with kids, I have a 20-year-old stepdaughter, and it's similar where you pick your battles. You love the individuality of this person, but then you still try to respect the capacity to give them some lines to break within because you know that in the long run that's helping them, but also you're not trying to, like you said, have the the knife hand. You're like, get there, clean your room. It's like, that may not be the way to do it. And then I talk about with clients, I talk about the five love languages, but in leadership, it's very much the same way. It's about understanding, again, what motivates this person, what motivates the team, what sort of people are we attracting to our organization? There are a lot of people that are very hyper aggressive and they attract similar people, And in those areas where that's a benefit, then that will absolutely serve you. But in the areas where it's detrimental or where there are gaping blind spots that you're not even aware of, and you don't have these other people that are more multidimensional, these people that are more present, these people have more pragmatic empathy, that's when you're losing out and you don't even understand it. And then what do they do? They try to scale and now they're creating even more of a gap and now they're creating even more divide. And now there's even more unnecessary tension that's not serving them in a positive manner. So being aware of those things is key. And just like you were saying, speaking is one thing, but hearing what's not being said, hearing what's being said that other people aren't hearing. When I spoke to Jerry Colonna, it was very much the same thing where he talks about that in his kind of reboot workshops. That's what he talks about. He said, there's a lot of stuff being said, but 
what's not being said, what's not being heard, what are they hearing that you're not saying, all these things. And I know that it sounds, I don't want to sound too woo-woo, but if you're having a real conversation with somebody, we, we feel that. And I talk about empathy and empty being spelled similarly for the same reason. You have to empty yourself of this expectation. I'm just here. I'm listening, just like what we're doing now. I'm not like, oh, I'm waiting for my turn to say something. It's like, no, just lots of times the answer is within that person. And if we can just hold that space and just give them permission or ask them a question here or do a, a general coaching cue this direction, now we're able to go into this place that I didn't know existed and maybe they may not know exists. And now together we had this new experience together, which in many ways not only breeds trust and leadership, but it helps foster this humanity within the organization. Yeah. And not only have that experience together, but you grow together. And you know, having a growth mindset or beginner's mindset where I've run into problems with the leaders in the past as well, some leaders in the past is they got that closed mentality or the, the fact that they, they think they know everything or, or they have a scarcity mindset that drives fear in them that makes them not want to ask questions. Like they feel because they're the leader of an organization by rank or by time or whatever, they feel that everybody expects them. They feel that everybody expects them to be the smartest person in the room. I don't ever expect a leader to be the smartest person in the room. I expect the leader to be asking the questions and growing through asking those questions, growing themselves, growing us as a team, growing us as an organization, and always wanting to know more. I feel the people with that fixed or closed mindset are actually the most dangerous people out there. They literally can get people killed by not asking questions, by trying to appear as though they know everything. And then when someone does die, that's when they start asking questions. That's not the time to do it. But yeah, I fully agree with you on all the points made there, brother. And that's the truth. I mean, like you said, that's it's too late once it's already happened. And the understanding, like you're saying, the way that I lead is the way everybody it dictates the pace of everyone else. So if I don't ask questions or I appear perfect or I fear doing anything for this fear of not appearing perfect, now what am I doing? I'm telling my people, I don't want you guys to do anything outside the lines whatsoever. As a matter of fact, I want you guys to wait. I want you guys to, to check with me and now I become the bottleneck unnecessarily, or I've told these people to not try to look outside the box. And again, after the fact, okay, hey, last quarter, we lost 50%. Why aren't we thinking outside the box, guys? Why aren't you guys trying? It's like, well, it's easy to beat them up after the fact. So it all comes down to that ability. And, and what do we see? Jerry Colonna says something. He says, what way have I been complicit in these things that I claim that I do not want? or even Jocko about extreme ownership, whomever it is, like, it doesn't matter. It comes down to the leader. It comes down to self-leadership. How am I leading myself? And then understanding that whether I'm aware of it or not, that's palpable within the organization. And frankly, it goes all the way through that chain of command and it comes into the product or service that we're providing. And the customer may not even be able to put their finger on it, but if they can feel that there's trust, love, and empathy there, they can't even say those words, but they know it. They recognize it. They sense it. And they will seek that out, whether it be from you or the person that you refer or whatever the case may be, but it comes down to that authenticity. And I think that self-knowledge is key. And the only way for self-knowledge is through mindfulness and oftentimes adversity and hardship to challenge us to figure out what the hell really matters. Because if everything's a priority, nothing's a priority. And everybody claims that they're doing these things as a priority, but then 
again, this is what you're claiming that is important, but then your actions are over here, not corroborating this. So there's conflict somewhere. And when there's conflict there, then it's hard for us to maintain bearing, to drive forward, to even know where the hell we're going. And then if that's how we're going, so does the organization. The uh, Something you said also made me think about the scene in Breaking Bad. I don't know if you ever watched Breaking Bad. How could you not watch Breaking Bad? It's amazing. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> but throughout the whole series, this guy, he's a teacher. He's saying that what he's doing on the outside is Breaking Bad. He's making meth in this RV, but he's claiming that what he's doing is for his family continually claiming, hey, I'm doing this for my family. I'm doing this for my family. And at the end of the show, he finally breaks down and he's like, you know what? I wasn't doing this for my family at all. I was doing this for my ego. I was doing this to feed my own ego, to make the money so that I felt important. And I think what you were talking about is, and what kind of made me think about this is that the ego is another thing that gets in the way. That fixed mindset, a lot of the time, that scarcity mindset leads to feeding the ego or protecting the ego and in being mindful you can be aware of when you are doing things for the wrong reasons and that's where you talked about priorities if everything's a priority then nothing's a priority well if we are doing this for our ego continually feeding our ego protecting our ego and that's our priority then we as leaders are going to miss the mark and by being mindful, a lot of time you can notice when you're doing something for your ego. You can notice, oh, you know what? I thought that I was doing this for the greater good, but really I'm doing this so that the organization can do well, so that people can pat me on the back and say, hey, great job as a CEO, great job as the commander, great job as X, Y, or Z kind of leader. I didn't do this for the right reasons. And when you notice that, and you, again, another switch you can flip. You flip that and you say, okay, well, what are the reasons that I want to do this? Well, I want to do this so that the organization can be better. I want to do this so that the people in the organization feel that they are part of something greater than themselves. I want to do this so that the organization can do good in society or the country or the world. And when you do that, that is going to just change the game. And again, that all comes back to mindfulness. If you are mindful as a leader, you're going to be more effective. If you're not mindful as a leader, you're going to miss the mark. And that mindfulness, as you say, it comes back to us seeing who we are, seeing our tendencies or, again, areas where we can improve or weaknesses that we thought that we had dammed up, but then maybe we've still sprung a leak. And oftentimes that, that's what it is. We've lost sight of something. We've had something that was a priority. We've allowed other things to compete for the priority status, and then it puts us in that place. I always talk to my leaders and my CEOs about the three steps to being the best CEO possible. And, and one is having a specific idea of what the power list is that day, those priorities. And again, there's only a couple that we can have within those confines. And that gives us the ability to be very hyper-present, gives us a deadline. We're using Parkinson's law. The amount of time that we allow for something to get done, the work will expand into that time frame. So if I give myself an hour, it takes me an hour. If I give myself 15 minutes, it's 15 minutes. So we intellectually sprint towards these things because they're important, because they're worthy of it. And lots of times we prioritize those even in the day number. So those are the first things. The second thing is asking ourselves right now with that mindfulness, is what I'm doing getting me closer or further away from these things that I claim are priorities? Because the reality is it's either doing one or the other. There's very little lateral motion, if we're being very honest. And then the third thing is being present. 
So again, the classic quandary, you have the CEO, this multimillionaire, great company. And in the entrepreneurial world, this is a pitfall where if I'm being vindicated and a lot of people are, you know, patting me on the back and saying, man, you're a great philanthropist and wow, you're influencing this and you're doing these things and you're, you grind, you work 90 hours a week and they encourage that behavior. They encourage that ability. And this person's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they claim that they're doing it for their family. So when they're at work at their 18 hour a day behind the screen or whatever it is they're doing, they're not as present with work as they should be. Therefore, they're inefficient and they're burning themselves out. The adrenaline system is just going crazy. They're sympathetic the whole time. And then they're wondering about their family. It's like, man, I feel guilty. But then when they're with their family, they can't put the phone down. They're thinking about the email. They're thinking about this follow-up. What did the CSO say about this? What did the COO say about this? Did marketing close that deal? And now instead of being present with the one, three and five-year-old and the dog and your beautiful wife on the couch watching something mindless on TV and just enjoying it, you can't because now your foot's over there. So you have one foot inside and outside the aircraft. And within that, what happens is there's collateral damage, not only in the family, not only in the business, but in us as individuals, as us as humans. And now I can't win either way. I'm not present here or I'm guilty here. And so in all those ways, it's a fool's errand. And I can never get ahead, no matter how much my bank account says or how nice the house is, because at the end of the day, we don't care about that. We care about the family. We care about having that relationship. And our family loves us. They want to have nice things. They want to live indoors with air conditioning. I get that. But to a child, like you being dad. Oh, yeah. There have been times, you know, all of my kids are mirrors for me. And my, my three-year-old, my son, <laughs> if I do bring work home, I will have my phone in my lap, you know, kind of cranked away up, sitting on my recliner and my son will come up and he'll grab my phone and say, put the phone down, data. And he says, come snuggle with me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the exact stuff I teach and I'm not practicing it, but he, he kind of forces it on me. And I love that about him. And it really brings it home to me, literally. But I also, you know, want to talk about something. Another thing you touched on is the weaknesses. A leader would quite often being you know, patted on the back by our leaders. And so we convince ourselves that we're doing well, but we're blind to the weaknesses that we have. And, you know, a tool that I used in, in the military and I still use to this day, and, and I know many organizations use is the SWOT analysis, S-W-O-T, the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And if you're not doing those, if you're not taking a look at what your organization's SWATs are, but also your individual SWATs, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, then you're going to miss out on something coming at you, either an opportunity, a threat that's going to take you down, a weakness that you have that you're not aware of, or you're not going to capitalize on a strength that you have. But you have to be 100% honest with yourself. And that's where the mindfulness comes into play. Also, you know, you're talking about the grind. And, you know, how often as leaders, we kind of wear that grind as a badge of honor. Oh, you know, I'm working 80, 90 hours a week. And we brag about that to our, our friends, to our families, even when they're like, well, we never see you. We're like, well, I'm doing 80 hours a week so that you can have X, Y, or Z. Is it so that you can have X, Y, or Z? Or is it so that we can feed our ego coming back to the ego thing? But in doing that, what are we doing to ourselves? What kind of precedent are we setting for our families? Like they see us working 80 and 90 hours a week. They think that that's the only acceptable thing when they grow up, that our children and our coworkers and those who work for us. 
they see that that's the only standard we are going to accept is grinding nonstop. And that is not healthy for anyone as individuals. It's not healthy for an organization. And you get past the point of diminishing returns. As you grind more and more, you actually are less and less effective. So you've got to take time for yourself as an individual. You've got to let your people take time for themselves. And they are going to be better for it as individuals and finally as an organization. Um, so I wanted to make sure I, I touched on that. You know, you mentioned Jocko earlier. I love Jocko. I, th- I think he's, he's a great guy. He's got fantastic leadership lessons. He also gets up at 4.30 every morning and grinds. But I don't know that that fits everyone. And a lot of people feel that if they're not getting up at 4.30 and grinding, then they're missing something. Well, maybe you need to give yourself a little grace. I want to say grace and not excuses, not outs. Give yourself some grace. And what is it that your body and your mind and your spirit need? If your body, your mind and your spirit need extra 15 minutes sleep or maybe a day off from the gym, then give it that. Now, if that's just your excuse not to go, that's different. But give yourself some grace. And as you give yourself some grace, your people see you giving yourself grace and they give themselves grace. And ultimately, again, that's going to lead to better people and better organizations. And I think the other thing that people miss is when you have a powerful, compelling purpose, a mission that drives you, that you're laser focused on, you don't have to tell yourself that it's important to have a routine, that it's important to have work ethic, that's important to get up. If you're a person who's working, and we've all been there in a job that may not be as satisfying or edifying as we would like for it to be, or we feel like it's a dead end job where we're just kind of stuck in this loop from nine to five, that person may not be motivated to get up at 4.30 to do whatever. And that's fine. I don't get up at 4.30 either. Having said that, if you have something that really does push you in a way that's positive, in a way that you want to accomplish this, then that's where you can separate the difference between an excuse and a reason. I've had CEOs that come to me and say, Marcus, how do I push harder? Or I feel like I'm burned out, or I feel like I'm not pushing hard enough. And I say, you're asking the wrong question. You should be asking, am I doing this for the right reason? And that gives clarity immediately because they realize in that question, oh, there is a lot more I can give. I can give myself grace now and redouble my efforts. Or this is an artificial metric that is not sustainable. And frankly, I don't even give a damn if I get to it or not. And it becomes so obvious. But within that question, we find a lot of answers. But if we don't have the ability, again, to be mindful, to even step back and detach for a minute, to do some box breathing. And people will find glimpses of this lucidity in the shower or right before they go to sleep or in a new conversation or a drive where there's nothing going on. And all of a sudden they get these like glimpses of clarity. There's a reason why that's there. And that clarity is available if we seek it out. And if we do it in a place of this patience, but also this understanding that there's going to be a lot of stuff that we cultivate, that we excavate from us that is not necessarily pretty or what we're proud of, but that's what we have to do. That's why in a lot of ways, adversity is a gift because it strips away all that stuff that's not real, gets down to what really is real. And now you can start asking some very simple questions, even from that place. And now things make more sense. And now all this pressure that was unnecessary, all these things that were pissing us off that are really superfluous don't help us at all. Now we become aware of that. But without that, we will just be kind of the rat in the maze trying to uh, get to the next piece of cheese. That's what we feel like all too often if, if we let ourselves do that 100%, man. Absolutely. I've never met a person that's been at a high level of performance that has not gone through hardship or adversity in their life. As a matter of fact, there's usually a direct correlation to the adversity that they can endure, go through, and evolve from. Can you tell us about a hardship that you've gone through in any capacity that 
at the time you didn't think you would get through it, but once you got through it and you look back, there was a tremendous gift and opportunity from it. Yeah. I mean, as a SEAL, it's very easy to be like, well, hey, look back at SEAL training. Go watch the Discovery Channel, Marcus. You've seen what I've been through. <laughs> <laughs> You've never been to SEAL before, right? Come on. Go read any book written by any SEAL. You'll know what I've been through. As I was saying before you hit record, I, I don't want to use that as, as the foundation for everything. I think that two other challenges in my life have been, I'll say three, actually. Three have really set the foundation for who I am. My first one was growing up, I ran track and cross country and our coach just put us through the ringer and really pushed us past our mental limits and showed us that the mind is sets limits that the body can pass, surpass pretty quickly. And that was, I think, laid the foundation for so much more of what I ended up doing in my life. It helped me get through the Naval Academy. It helped me get through Navy SEAL training, BUDS training. It helped me in my life, and it still does to this day. The next one is honestly my my first marriage. I am divorced and remarried, and I don't, at least I don't think that I harbor any animosity towards my first wife. But going through a marriage and trying to make it work and really struggling on both sides, she and I both. I'm going to give her credit because I was not the greatest (laughs) of husbands, to be completely honest. And going through that and then going through the divorce, that was brutal emotionally, physically, financially. That was a trial. And I think it made me a better husband now. I am more present as a husband now than I was in my first marriage talking about priorities. My priorities are what I believe are healthier now in this marriage than they were in my previous marriage. And honestly, I do not have any children with my first wife. And that for me is a blessing. But having gone through that marriage and through the divorce made me a better father to my children now. And then the last one is actually my oldest child, my five-year-old, when she was still in the womb, It was identified that she had a tumor in her liver. And when she was six months old, we went to go get the tumor checked. And they're like, yeah, we need to get this removed like now. So two weeks later, we found ourselves in Boston Children's Hospital and they were doing surgery. And right before the surgery, they told us that we're going to have to break your perfect little China doll. And that's exactly what happened. And we basically handed our six-month-old little girl over and then had to go and wait in the waiting room, right? that We handed over control, complete loss of control. The only thing that we had control of was ourselves. And we went to the waiting room, you know, nine or 10 hours later, they came and got us and they're like, okay, you know, everything went well, she's okay. But that was to me and the post-surgery and recovery and everything, that to me was one of the scarier things in my life. And being able to hand over control to someone else and have faith in their training, have faith in their abilities. I think that was one of the things in in my life that has laid the foundation for something else. And my being able to hand over control to other people in my life with faith and with confidence. Now, after having done that, that's been a, a big trial that has really helped me change how I see things in that regard. It's beautiful how you had the ability to give up that control because in many ways, people were giving up their control of their loved ones to you as a commander. Yes. Great point. Great point. hundred percent. That's what allowed it. And we see so many CEOs that 
micromanaged because why? They don't want to give up control. And they're spending a quarter of a million dollars on this person's salary, but yet they want to nitpick them and they want to be included in every email. It's like, if you're doing that, then you're impeding your team. You're discouraging them from actually taking action. I think it's beautiful that you had the ability to do that with the most precious thing that you've ever created at that point. And that's powerful. Yeah, well, it's it's definitely taught me a lot. Loss of control or handing over that control and being able to hand over that control, but also a sense of humility. Like I thought that I controlled everything, or at least at one point I thought that I controlled everything, but I don't. You got to have faith in something greater than yourself. You got to have faith in others and their abilities, their training, whether that's a surgeon operating on your six-month-old little girl or whether it is someone in your organization that you have hired to do a job. You've got to hand over that control. It's that locust of control, a locust of control. That's very, it's a mirage (laughs) at times and you have to let it go. Yeah, absolutely. Lucian, like you said, if we're hiring people and we go through our due diligence, just take your hands off the wheel, go to the next thing. There's other things that we should be doing. We have to look up and out, especially if we're leading. That's everything. John, thank you so much. I could talk to you forever. Yeah, same here, brother. And I look forward to having more conversations in the future for sure. Tell us where we can learn more about you. How can we hire you? How can we get you to consult, come speak, teach us resilience, all these things? Where can we find more? Yeah, thanks, Marcus. The easiest way is just on johnmccaskill.com. It's J-O-N-McCaskill.com. That's the easiest way to kind of see a little bit about me. And that has links to my social medias, though most of them now I've cut back on. My primary social media use is on LinkedIn. That's where you can find me. And then uh, I have a podcast called Men Talking Mindfulness. And Marcus mentioned at the beginning of the show, Men Talking Mindfulness. It's myself and my co-host, Will Schneider. And we interview a lot of folks on there. And sometimes it's just the two of us rapping about mindfulness and all things related to mindfulness to include leadership. Marcus, we'd love to have you on the show at some point. I'd love to. This conversation that we just had is a men talking mindfulness conversation. So (laughs) maybe we just share this episode. Sure, we do whatever you want. I love that. We'll do a dual launch and everybody wins and I'll come on yours. I'll launch it over here. We make it happen. I love it. Yeah, that'd be great, man. That'd be be fantastic. Oh, well, yeah, we'd love to have you. So again, thanks, Marcus, for having me. I appreciate it. Great opportunity. And I love what you're doing. I love what you're doing. And thank you for the work you're doing. And I want to say thank you again to Teresa for connecting us. And there's so much out there right now. And there's so many incredible people but there's, again, so much static. But when you have people that are like-minded that are cut from that same cloth and we connect, that's when we can really create that synergy where one plus one equals three. And we're making much more, not just impact, but influence in a positive capacity. 100%, brother. 100%. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Octa Nonverba Inner Circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.